This is Selected Wisdom. I'm Clint Watts. Throughout the pandemic, I had the opportunity to meet some of America's top doctors facing the challenges of the COVID-19 outbreak. Sometimes I'd see them virtually between television segments and we would commiserate about the infodemic, the wide swaths of false information about COVID and vaccines. Dr. Nahid Badilia is one of the amazing doctors explaining COVID-19 to Americans, serving on the front lines of the pandemic and helping counter the false information coming from patients. Dr. Bedelia is the founding director of the Center for Emerging Infectious Diseases Policy and Research at Boston University and associate director of the National Emerging Infectious Diseases Laboratories and an associate professor at the Boston University School of Medicine. She served as the medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit and was dispatched to West and East Africa during the 2013 to 2016 Ebola virus epidemic. There, she worked directly with patients and community stakeholders to treat and manage the disease. Along with her medical work, Dr. Bedelia holds a master's in law and diplomacy from the Fletcher School at Tufts, where she specialized in health security with a focus on pandemic response. Dr. Bedelia joined me to talk about COVID from an infectious disease doctor's perspective, her journey to medicine, and working through the Ebola epidemic. Here's Nahi. So, first question. Why is everyone sick right now? I've been sick for a month. Are you hearing this? I just was curious because we, like in our office, probably like half the people are sick, but we test for COVID. It doesn't come back COVID. So I just wondered what's going on. Well, Clint, I, I think it's a couple of things. One is that most of us uh, have been protected from a lot of upper respiratory circulating viruses because our behaviors changed over the last couple of years. And so our immunity against some of those other viruses that might have protected us and maybe gotten us off with a milder infection, we're potentially seeing uh, a worse, more severe seasonal coronaviruses, for example. I mean, that's the worry with the flu as well, right? That when flu comes back, our communities open up completely, that we might see more severe flu because we don't have as much immunity. The other is we've changed our behavior over the last couple of months. And so even those of us who were previously potentially have held off not, not getting COVID, you're hearing more and more that people are getting COVID. And that's not just a signal of more transmissible variants, but it's also a signal of us changing our behavior. Do you think this is going the way you might have thought it would go last fall? You know, Omicron was happening. They talk of new variants. We're never really, at least in the public, we're not real sure what's going on. But do you feel this is the trajectory you kind of thought it, it would go on over time? Yeah. You know, so... There was a, when Omicron came around, I think people are taken aback and, and, you know, the general public clearly asked the question of how could you be taken aback? Because everybody predicted there'd be new variants, you know, mm -hmm. and the reason why it wasn't that Omicron wasn't possible. It was on the unlucky scale of things that could happen. And the reason why is because when Delta came around, it was a more transmissible variant and it was a slightly more severe variant potentially. And, and people thought, well, look, you know, we've gotten people immunized. You know, unfortunately, populations now built up more immunity. The, the tough part is viruses evolve in a couple of ways. One, they can evolve to be more transmissible. That gives them an advantage, right? They just infect more and more people or they evolve to be more deadly. They, that means that they potentially could make people sicker. The longer people stay sicker, the more likely they are to transmit to other people. The thought was, to that point, the more deadlier viruses... Uh, that were evolving, like beta and lambda, they didn't make as big of a 
global impact. So once you built an immunity to the wild type, they didn't seem to compete out everything. And people thought, well, there couldn't be anything else that could compete out Delta. Omicron was that scale of bad luck that was an evolution of a virus that was more transmissible, you know, potentially, but also more immune evasive, uh, not so much deadlier, but more immune evasive. That means that it got got around your memory, you know, immune memory to potentially infect you more. And we still had enough pockets of people who hadn't been vaccinated, hadn't had the infection in the past, or people whose immunity was waning from their primary vaccination series so that it put a huge number of people at risk. Was it unpredictable? No, but it was it was less likely desired outcome, less probable desired outcome. And and that might, you know, that might happen again if we see a lot of people lose immunity against, you know, against this virus from prior vaccines, waning immunity. And we unfortunately have a well-timed variant that is more immune evasive and more transmissible. So what does best case, worst case look like going into fall? That's one thing, since we do have more time and there for nuances, you know, people want you to just say it's all over and go home. You know, you can go about your life and it's great. And I know that isn't realistic. Like that's not how the world works. What do you see kind of the a positive trajectory or a negative one looking like. And I, I think we all know fall is when we're all back indoors again, you know, and things spread quickly. Yeah. I mean, best case scenarios, and I'm taking like a longer term perspective, not just even fall. Multi-year. Multi, or, you know, to the end of next year. I think that we, that we're already seeing these new variants. So clearly we might see variants that are a bit more transmissible that we, even when we see a spike in cases that hopefully there are, there are, there's a disconnect between cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. I'm already starting to see that. And hopefully over time, you know, that it does become a manageable infection. The only, you know, the only tough part here in the best case scenario is that it also requires us to figure out what's the deal with long COVID. So best case scenario, we have cases separated from deaths and, and hospitalizations, and we figure out what causes long COVID, how to treat it and how to prevent it. And so that truly getting the infection becomes much more manageable. Worst case scenario, immunity wanes. People don't get as many boosters as they should. Mm -hmm. We get a new variant that's more deadly and we don't figure out, um, you know, a way to treat long COVID for a longer period of time. I've got two separate questions that when you say long COVID, what does that mean to you? Because I hear people claim long COVID and then, you know, I know some people are exaggerating. Some people are telling the truth. I like, I don't really know what that means, but so what do you, what do you consider long COVID as a doctor? So a very important question. And long COVID is just one of the many post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2. So it's, that's the idea that after you survive an acute infection from this virus that you have ongoing issues, right? And WHO and CDC both have definitions. The reason why it's confusing is that there are potential different reasons for why people have lingering issues after SARS-CoV-2. And one is that pe when people are acutely ill, like when you become hospitalized, that's like your body going through like a car crash. Like you, you, the hospitalization itself has long lasting impacts, right? So people who are in the ICU, the impact of that will last. That's one. Two, there's people who just have persistent symptoms, continued persistent symptoms. That's what we're seeing in a lot of our clinic is people who had this virus like a year ago and they still have like you know, cough or runny nose and problems with vision and, you know, uh, like hearing ringing in their ears and things like that. And that continues. The third is people who develop a new set of symptoms. They might not even have had a severe infection, but they end up developing new issues. And now there are studies that have uh, mapped everything from 
you know, issues with potential new diagnosis of diabetes to people who have potential kidney issues. And the reason why there's so much confusion is that there haven't been well-controlled studies that basically take everybody who got COVID and everybody who didn't. And it's becoming increasingly hard to find people right. who didn't get COVID, right? And comparing those two to try to figure out what is what is truly the virus. But I will say this to your point about cynicism in the general public about long COVID. It is actually not that rare to have viruses potentially cause like continued persistent symptoms. I worked in West Africa with the Ebola virus disease outbreak or epidemic in 2013, 2016. And, and we discovered for the first time for a virus we'd known since 1976 could cause the post-Ebola virus disease syndrome, right? Even influenza, run-of-the-mill influenza can cause rare cases of, of issues like inflammation of the heart or other aspects. Um, so this, it, these things can then can happen. They happen more rarely with the thing, diseases that we know we know much about because all of us have already developed immunity against it. And not all of us had to go through this infection within a span of two years. And, and the trouble here is that even if the prevalence of these kinds of persistent things are like less than 10 percent, that's a huge worldwide right. population that just went through a new insult from a new virus. So with that, you, you mentioned that vaccines and, and consistent and persistent vaccines going in arms over time would change the path, right? Yes, absolutely. Are you seeing less resistance now to vaccines compared to this time last year? Or is it still sort of the same politicization of it? I just asked because I, I know when I went to get my booster, I saw a guy who was clearly against getting a vaccine who was getting his for the first time, you know, and he was asking questions about it. And I thought that was a positive sign, anecdotal, right? Like it's just one person. But I wonder what you thought, you know, on a nationwide or a global level. Yeah, I actually haven't seen more recent surveys anecdotally. I, you know, I think that the lot of things have sort of helped and hurt people's acceptance. So in the last couple of months, the thing that's helped is, you know, the evidence. We just talked about long COVID. There's like tons of studies now that show that being vaccinated actually decreases the chances, almost halves the chances of you getting persistent symptoms mm. or long COVID afterwards. So that's one thing that I think a lot of people sort of the, saw the benefit of it. Sometimes the thing that works against is that is that people went through the Omicron wave and people who were vaccinated got infected. And the general perception then was, oh, why am I getting vaccinated? Right. Well, it's keeping you out of the hospital. <laughs> it's 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 keeping you from being dead, which is which is a great benefit, right? And and that's that's that gets lost. The nuance of that, the benefit of of these vaccines, sort of get lost. And I think that um, the fact that these things aren't continuously getting politicized, I do think the anecdotally, I have seen an, an uptake and increase in people coming back to get vaccinated. But the important thing is to sort of point out that this this looks like we like a flu vaccine or something that we take you know, regularly because the virus can, will continue to evolve. And also that the fact that our immunity seems to not last forever as it doesn't in many vaccines. So you mentioned Ebola and that you had worked on that. How are these things different? And I wonder if maybe you could talk about vaccine development. From what I understand, you know, our experience with SARS, Ebola, some of these other viruses is what allowed us to make a vaccine so quickly. But how is COVID different does it surprise you, you know, because you've gone around the world and, you know, experienced all these other outbreaks and worked on these very specifically? What's different to you about it having had these other experiences like working on Ebola? Yeah, I, I'll talk about, you know, as you said, I think you made a good point there about, I mean, there's also the point of how our Ebola and SARS 
COVID-2 different than what we might face in the future, because we did benefit from years of just NIH and DOD sort of investment and development in in trying to get, you know, potential vaccines and, and treatment for antivirals and things to the forefront where we could be ready to test them. And so just focusing on the research part, the difference between the Ebola experience and the the COVID experience was part of what's been an issue for many emerging infectious diseases is that you have these tools ready to go. You've tested their efficacy in the laboratory. You need to actually test whether or not they work when people are at risk of getting it, right? How do you prove that a drug works or not? You give it to a certain number of people and you don't give it to a certain number of people. You you see if it makes a difference to give this drug or not. To do the trials, you actually need research infrastructure. And in many cases, what are emerging infectious diseases arise in areas of the world that research capacity may not be ready to go. And, and the fact that you actually need to wait for an outbreak to happen, right? This is sort of the catch-22. You need an outbreak to happen to be able to test the efficacy of the tools in your hand, diagnostics, vaccines, therapeutics. And you need to be ready with the research infrastructure to, te- to do those tests. But the difference with COVID was this happened everywhere. I mean, it's happened in resource-rich areas, resource-limited you know, limited areas, and the ability to have so many people at risk allowed us to take advantage of the knowledge we had from SARS, SARS-1, as well as MERS, to understand how viruses like SARS-CoV-2 infect the human cell, where we should target them. That's the difference is that, you know, you, you didn't have as much of an influx. There was influx of capital and, and funding to try to get research done with Ebola, but there was a lot more with COVID because it was a wildfire everywhere. And, and my worry is that the next time we have an epidemic, it might be an epidemic, it may not be global, and that we'll forget the lessons of this and we won't we're already forgetting it. I mean, you're already seeing this battle and trying to get global funding or even continued COVID funding in Congress to continue this fight. That's the way in, in which they're similar. And But we may not have that advantage. Like next pathogen we have may not be one that there's been significant investment in identifying the right way to target them. And that's why we need to make those investments now. Did you always want to be a doctor? I was either that or an astronaut. And, you know, I'm nearsighted, so I figured I was never going <laughs> to I was never going to meet the astronaut. I was explaining uh, this to somebody. That's how I ended up in the Army. Because oh, I wanted to be a, thing? I, No, I wanted to be a pilot. And I had seen nice. the right stuff when I was a kid. I was like, this is the coolest. And then I went and took my vision test and I failed it. That was back in yeah. the days when you couldn't just <laughs> fix your eyes. And so I was like, Army seems pretty cool. And so I did. I ended up in the Army. But, yeah, so what made you want to be a doctor? Well, there's the the familial stuff. My my dad's a physician as well, so that was sort of like the family business, right? I, I knew the life of a physician, and and I tried to rebel against it, but but I always knew that I wanted to work in infectious diseases. I get a lot of emails from just people who want to you know work in emerging infectious diseases, and and they say like, should I apply to medical school or, or not? And and the biggest thing is the difference between being in public health versus being in medicine is that. You need to want to be in that personal space with another person and share their issues and, and do that care on one-on-one. Public health is such an important part of doing this work. But with medicine, there is this element of, you know, building trust and confidence with the person who's in front of you. And that I cared about. I love public health. I, I continue to do public health stuff. But to me, going into medicine and doing the physician part of it was because I loved that that conversation, that space that you create with your patients to try to improve their lives. It felt rewarding and, and selfishly, like personally gratifying to be able to change you know, lives at that level. That leads me to, to the next two questions I had anyways, which is, 
you also have a master's in international affairs, right? What did, made yep. you to kind of, kind of decide to go that route? Because basically the two, the two things you're talking about, public health and medicine, you've done both. So what made you want to go and pursue both those at the same time? So I, I got a master's in law and diplomacy at the Fletcher School. And part of the reason I did that, I ended up going back and doing a lot of public health uh, training as well. But um, the reason I did it that is because infectious diseases is something that I knew that I've wanted to work in since like my early 20s. Um, and and it was around the HIV, right in early, late 90s, 2000s, it was the global AIDS epidemic um, and the impact of that. And that really what is what influenced me. And what you, what you see in that epidemic, played out in that epidemic, that's played out in almost every epidemic and pandemic, is, is that infections are, um, they're seeped in our economy, our culture, our, the way we treat each other, the way we organize our communities is complex. And the Fletcher degree allowed me to sort of understand that economic background, that political background, the ability to sort of do policy work related to ground realities. And, and it, it took a long time, right? I, I did a lot of medical training, did a lot of work in, in, in different settings in, in uh, as you mentioned, operationally, globally in outbreak response. But it's been worthwhile to then take that frontline knowledge to be able to apply it to policy and apply it to making a change. With that and infectious diseases, I would assume, but maybe I'm incorrect, that to really study infectious diseases, you have to be interested in global phenomenon. Like there's no real sense in saying I'm American infectious diseases. I mean, obviously there's a national component. Am I correct? Is that why you wanted to go around the world and see where these things were? Yeah. And and I actually, I mean... I grew up traveling around the world so that it was sort of an easy state for me, right, to to not that infectious diseases don't require passports to travel across borders. And and so you can't really and particularly even with COVID response, it sort of applies to our current condition. Like you can't really think of a domestic response and a global response. That makes no sense. The two as and I think as she showed, just recently said that as well in terms of our response here in the U.S., the two need to be sort of tied together mm -hmm. because they're all related. The, the other reason why is because we are cumulatively changing the environment around us. Uh, just give, giving people a crash course in like uh, 30 seconds of like my entire course at Fletcher School that I do over like six months. But we're changing the environment around us, right? The population of the earth has doubled in the span of my own lifetime. The way that a lot of these viruses are appearing is that we are a bigger population, we need more food, we raise more animals, we're taking over more wetlands. Domestic animals and wild animals are you know, interacting with each other and they're interacting with us and viruses that were in balance, you know, in those milieus and nature with, with wild animals are now spilling over into domestic animals and into humans. And that's, and that's the concern about spillover. They estimated between now and 2070, over 3,000, near 4,000 viruses could potentially spill over. This is going to blow most people's minds, but I think we live in a world where potentially these spillovers happen all the time. That means that viruses are spilling over into humans and causing an infection, but many of them may not cause an infection that has symptoms. So you might have evidence of infection because you developed antibodies against a foreign object, but you didn't actually get a disease from it. Or they may have very run-of-the-mill-like symptoms. And because there's not enough diagnostics around the world, we may be missing small outbreaks all the time. Right. And it's only when we're unlucky, when an outbreak, when a spillover happens, it aligns enough people get infected and there's a connecting node, right? Travel, like I think the numbers are in 2017, 4 billion people took a flight. We are really connected together in this world. And that's not going to change. It's only going to get closer together. 
let's say it's 1950, 1960, people are less connected, they travel less. Maybe there were outbreaks all the time, right? And they burned themselves out and no one really even knew what it was or they thought it was just a flu. Is that correct? Is that like how, how you think about it? Yeah. But also in 1950, we hadn't, you know, destroyed as much of the biodiversity. We hadn't gotten around to like changing the environment as much. So we, we are changing the environment too. So partly it's that we're more connected, but also we changed the environment since 1950 in ways that that we can't take back. Like we are we are in an era where you might see the spillovers of new outbreaks or epidemics uh, constantly and with greater frequency. So that kind of brings me to what I want to kind of see now it's been two, like really two years that we have started the lockdown. Now we're coming out of the lockdown of sorts. It's still a little confusing. In China, they're still trying to lock down and I have friends who are in China describing what they're going through, which seems even more extreme than anything we went through in the U.S. How do you feel about it? Is it even feasible to think that like with Omicron or any of the new variants that China, which is maybe it's probably the most populous population density, they have the largest and most cities, probably any country in the world. Does it make any sense that this is going to happen? I, I, I think you can't achieve zero COVID. You can't. Yeah, the virus is everywhere. Um, you can close down your borders. When you reopen it, it'll appear, right? You cannot achieve zero COVID. And so what you need to do is to reduce the case counts. You need to make the cases that occur be less damaging. So people will hear this and they'll say, well, why did we lock down? I, I think that the, the lockdowns or containment strategies have to have a goal. Early on in a pandemic, if there's few cases, containment could work. Because what you could do is actually eradicate the threat. You right. can find everybody who had the infection, everybody who potentially was exposed to them, and just allow them to go through their incubation period or through their illness, and then you could actually contain it, right? Or you could use containment the way that we should have used it, but we didn't. Like in, in spring of 2020, I have this flashback. I was on MSNBC giving an interview about flattening the peak, right? And so one of the anchors asked me, what does it mean? What What happens after flattening the peak? And I said, well... Ideally, we get a plateau. Flying the peak doesn't mean you go down to zero. It's because nobody in the world or very few people in the world have immunity. And if we don't have vaccine, a transmissible virus like this just keeps transmitting. So unless we break chains of cycles of transmission or we have a way to sort of avoid infections, like what you want right. is sort of a steady state of low cases. And, and you know, the, the best thing that you can sort of do in that environment is to delay people getting cases. I'm knocking a wood. I haven't gotten COVID yet, but I'm glad I didn't get COVID the first year because we didn't have vaccines, right? I'm glad I didn't get COVID the second year because we didn't have antivirals. Because if I got sick and there were vulnerable people around me, my patients, they wouldn't be able to access something if I were to pass on the infection to them. And I'm really hoping that I don't get COVID this year because that way, you know, we figured out what happens with long COVID before I do. But well, do I think I'll eventually get COVID? Yes. I, yeah. I think that we all will. So to China's strategy about containment, to what end? I think containment to what end? Is there, is there a goal to try to up the vaccination levels, which I think they're working on doing that currently among population? Is it to get more testing and treatment in place? Yes, that makes sense. But I think for the sake of just driving it to zero, for the sake of driving it to zero, it's, it's once the borders open again, I think it'd be tough for them to keep that up. Were you surprised that Americans resisted vaccines and fought the lockdowns or not? Like as a doctor, because I, I imagine you saw waves of this before we ever saw COVID, right? Like you're a doctor, you're engaging with patients. I had heard for years and written about 
the death of expertise and, you know, not trusting doctors and things like that. So did it really surprise you that we had this kind of trouble or or not? Or was it kind of just what you expected? So I, I think I talked about like, you know, the prior experiences that I've had with Ebola and, you know, been part of like a bunch of uh, other like Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever and a bunch of other resources. And every time I think, you know, this human part of it is an important part. Technocrats pay attention to like diagnostics, vaccines, treatments, and human behaviors have always been part of the equation of how you stop outbreaks, you know. And I have this, I know this is a long-winded way of, of saying this, but so I teach this class about um, the 2013-2016 Ebola virus disease epidemic. And I always mention the role of community distrust, you know, and, and how in West Africa, when when EVD or Ebola virus disease epidemic took, uh, took place, there was this great cynicism and distrust among communities because they'd never heard of the virus. Like, you know, it had never occurred in West Africa. It's, so why is it real? You know, what they were seeing is, I don't see it. Like, I've never seen it here. These people look like they have malaria. Why would you say they have Ebola? They've never had Ebola. We've never had Ebola here before, right? So I used to mention the distrust, and particularly in West Africa. I mean, that's an extreme setting, but Sierra Leone, one of the countries that I worked the most in, had like a really bloody civil war. Like, you know, a decade before that, it was and, and so the trauma as well as the distrust in government was there. And when I taught that class again last week, I was giving a guest lecture on, some, on this and I presented the same slides again. And I stopped in the middle and I said, does any of this surprise you then? You know, when you present it this way, is it surprising that the U.S. responded with a lot of people who potentially may not have as much scientific literacy or have distrust of government for them to say, I don't know what this virus is like, you know, I've never heard of it before. These people look like they have the flu. I don't believe it's real. The The problem wasn't that that was going to happen. The problem was that they, what surprised me was um, the forces that politicized that, you know, how powerful that was. Yes, there could have been a portion of the population who thought that. But when you make that kind of perspective mainstream, you, and you keep hammering disinformation on top of it, then that paranoia, that sort of distrust only grows. And, and and it becomes weaponized, you know, and, and that was what was unexpected. Not that some people had distrust, it's that distrust could be used as a political tool in the middle of an outbreak was surprising to me. So I was a army officer on 9-11 and it was interesting. The wars kicked off. Everybody moved into the government. People were enlisting. They wanted to go to places like Afghanistan and Iraq. What about for the medical profession now? I know it's been really hard being a frontline worker when you're getting screamed at. That and airline attendance, right? Like kind of the two worst jobs over the last couple of years. And that's way, way tougher in my mind than a lot of the military and intelligence and stuff like that. Do you think you'll see a surge across America, people wanting to be doctors, wanting to be nurses, wanting to be frontline medical people? So in my profession, it was like, in my generation, it was HIV, like I mentioned. I, I think that right. it was sort of that was inspired a generation of folks to go into global public health and HIV. And I think Ebola did that for for the next generation. And I think it sort of hardened my resolve to be part of this. In the U.S. with the COVID experience, there is a couple of different dynamics that are happening at the same time. One, you have an aging healthcare workforce. And so even those that may not have retired five years ago right now, they just took early retirement because mm. the last two years have been really tough. I think people need to hear this. Your healthcare workers are exhausted. They are burnt out. They are overworked. And it is all of those things. And then there is the conflict and friction that comes from having to fight the disinformation and misinformation, right? That's just the cherry on the top. That's not even the, the 
bulk of the work that we do. You're seeing a massive shift of people who are retiring early. And so you are, we're going to see a crunch because of that. Um, and, but the other part of this is you're seeing more and more people apply to public health programs. You're seeing, you know, tons of interest in, in going into medicine. My hope is that it inspires the next generation. It's too early to tell, but I do think we're in for a crunch in the near space because you're losing a lot of people because of retirement. I would imagine there are a lot of people inspired to follow in your footsteps, seeing what you're doing, you know, in, in a lot of these communities. I know it's been tough with the disinformation, but no career is more important. And I, I would imagine nothing more rewarding than taking on the biggest medical challenges. And like you said, there's going to be way more infectious diseases over time based on the way climate and population and disinformation, misinformation, all these things are going. It would seem like this is a field that's not going away and, and there's a huge need for it. No, it, it's not. And and so let me just say for the for the prior point, one thing I'll say is it's not just retirement. I think people, physicians and nurses have left just out of burnout as well. Like there are right. studies that show like 40 percent have like at least one symptom of psychological distress. My experience, and I can speak to, to this from like some of the prior outbreak stuff and, and, you know, the Ebola experience and things is that there are people who see this. And I think I'm already seeing this and, and see the fire and they'll pick up a bucket and they'll run with the water in the bucket to help like yes. this. And, and that's just our, that's human nature, right? I mean, I, I do believe that's going to happen. The tough part is how are we going to take that energy and make it a societal movement? How are we going to take all that wanting to make a difference? and apply it to where it's needed, you know, and, and not forget the lessons. How do we take all these people who are interested, take their ingenuity, their their hard work, their intellect, and apply it in a way that makes us more resilient when next time there's a pandemic. And, and that's going to be the challenge. There are, and, and I was going to say globally, right? There's a lot of commitment being, I mean, I'm just throwing stuff out for the listeners in terms of like, if, in case people think nothing's being done on the international level or the national level, WHO is now running the sort of potential negotiations for a pandemic treaty that brings governments together to have an understanding of how we interact with each other. The G7 countries have put together a um, commitment called the 100-day mission to try to get vaccines, diagnostics, therapeutics early, right? You have the U.S. government investing in the American Pandemic Preparedness Plan, trying to identify new sort of opportunities. So there's a lot of, there is a lot of energy. It's just that generally that energy disappears because as someone said after Ebola, it's like a cycle of panic and neglect. And we are entering, unfortunately, this the neglect part of the cycle now. Well, I hope uh, everyone joins you in the ranks. It, it, it's not going away. It'll be extremely valuable over time. So my last two-part question, is there anywhere you've been around the world? I know you've traveled all over, uh, you know, with these outbreaks of all different types. Is there anywhere around the world where you've gone and been Shocked, pleasantly surprised by remarkable healthcare practices and kind of robust medical care where you would not think it, you know, coming from America? I did a I did a consultancy for a project for Global Fund a while ago, but looking at how we transitioned to chronic care for HIV and providing cancer care and things like that in resource limited settings like Rwanda and it was actually programs set up by partners in health about how nurses could serve as the oncologists in very remote areas and be able to provide chemo and things like that. And I was, I was doing locums tenants right after fellowship, like 11, 12 years ago for a couple of weeks. And I was up in New Hampshire, um, like in Colebrook, this small town right at the border of, of New Hampshire. And it's interesting, the nurses there were doing the same thing. They were learning how to provide chemo. 
so they could, you know, serve, right. provide chemo in an area that doesn't have oncologists. And uh, all that to say that it's not abroad, that, that some of the same, you know, lack of resources exist in parts of our country as well. And so the, the, the innovation that you see in other resource uh, limited areas are actually very worthwhile for our healthcare system in terms of lessons. So yeah, you've had this long career now. You've been all over the world. You've gone through many pandemic type events. What's something you've learned that they never teach you in school? So the one thing that I feel that I was never taught in medical school is that majority of the deaths that I've seen over my career are people died from lack of access to things that already exist, resources that already exist, tests that already exist, medications that already exist, rather than lack of invention of new things. And I'll, don't get me wrong, like innovation can absolutely change lives, you know, and, and save lives. But the the in, the the intention has to be there. The intentional equity has to be there to be able to share new resources. And we're kind of seeing that with the mRNA vaccines as well. So if we want to make a difference, we, we have to, in medicine, not just work on improving our medical care, but also work on improving access to it. This is the last one. It's a catch-all I ask everybody. You are banned from the United States. You cannot return, but there's no extradition treaties. You have to go somewhere else in the world to live out the rest of your time. Where do you go? Ooh, ah, this is what this one is easy. I um, I absolutely love northern Uganda. It is one of the most beautiful places in the world, the most biodiverse places I have ever seen. And I can just see myself like in a small house on the Crater Lakes, continuing to do fantastic infectious diseases research with McCary University and never returning home and having excellent, excellent Indian food. <laughs> there we go. So it sounds like you already have a plan, actually. It sounds like this is what the plan is. So if, if you ever vanish off the internet and now television, you know, I'll don't know. tell people. <laughs> I, I will hold this and then I'll sell this information off as nice. part of a, a part of the capture plan. That was Dr. Nahid Bedelia, infectious disease doctor and founding director of the Center for Emerging Infectious Diseases Policy and Research at Boston University. Selected Wisdom is produced by Sophia James and Steve Lichtig. If you like this episode and want to hear more, make sure to follow and download wherever you stream your podcast. For more details on our guest in this episode, visit our website, selectedwisdom.com, the Selected Wisdom Substack, or follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Selected Wisdom. I'm Clint Watts. Thanks for listening.